Yesterday at our men's meeting, I got so caught up in what Shep was saying that I forgot to mention the resource that I had promised in the email that we sent out. Uh, here it is, and we'll tell you more about it at our next men's meeting. Five centuries of wisdom for the family. I mean, everybody's in here. All the Puritan writers, Richard Baxter, D. Martin Lloyd-Jones, from those times right on up until now. It's really good. It's a compilation of articles that have to do with the family. So we'll tell you more about this because we want to make available to our dads uh, a special offer on this book. Now, if you have your Bibles, open them up to Joshua chapter 10. Joshua chapter 10. The longest day was not D-Day on the beaches of Normandy, but it is in chapter 10 in the Bible and it states that it is the longest day that ever was or ever will be. So let's take a look at what we're going to see today. It's a predicament for Gibeon. You remember the Gibeonites had fooled Israel and they uh, made an alliance pretending that they were from a far way off. And then there was the disarmament of the enemy, the Amorites. This was an involuntary disarmament, as we'll see. And then the requirement for victory. Now if you take a look at this map, you can see Joshua's strategy for conquering the promised land. Of course, God was guiding him. Now, if you don't have a strategy in your Christian life, you're probably going to get defeated time and again by the enemy. And a strategy, I mean, what are you going to do about worship? What are you going to do about a daily devotion time? What are you going to do about prayer? What are you going to do about all of these things that make up the Christian life? You've got to have a strategy. So you can see on the map there from the red, Joshua's strategy was beginning at Gilgal to cut right across laterally. He conquered Jericho down at the bottom on the plains, up the mountain to Ai, and then as we'll see today, the battle of Gibeon. So he is separating the northern Canaanite tribes from the southern Canaanite tribes, and then he's going to start a mop-up operation down in the south in Canaan that we'll see. And in today's lesson, we see the big battle where there is a confederation of all the kings in the south who get together to go against Gibeon. So the predicament for Gibeon, let's read in verses 1 and 2. Now it came about when Adonai ben Zedek, king of Jerusalem, heard that Joshua had captured Ai and had utterly destroyed it, just as he had done to Jericho and its king, so he had done to Ai and its king and that the inhabitants of Gibeon had made peace with Israel and were within their land, that he feared greatly. That's the king of Jerusalem. Because Gibeon was a great city, like one of the royal cities. And because it was greater than Ai, and all of its men were mighty. Now notice that Gibeon was a large, important city. And all of its men were seasoned warriors. And when the king of Jerusalem... And these other kings understood that one of their important cities had made an alliance with the Israelites who were invading the land. They knew that they were going to have to do something about it. Likely, when the king of Jerusalem got the news, he thought about that old military adage, get there first with the most. And so he decided to round up a coalition so that he would have strength in numbers and so that he would attack them before they had time to do anything about it. So we see there that uh, on the map, 
Gideon controlled a mountain pass from the hill country down to the plains, from Beth Horon, the pass at Beth Horon, down to the valley of Ajalon. And with victories at Jericho and Ai, now Israel controls the lateral pass across the central part of the nation. So they're in good position militarily to start down in the south and finish off those guys and then take care of the northern campaign, as we'll see. The enemy was sufficiently aroused now and is ready to go on the attack. Verse 3, Then Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, sent word to Hoham, I'd hate to be named Hoham, but there it is, king of Hebron, and to Piram, king of Jarmuth, and Japhia, king of Lachish, Debir, king of Eglon, saying, Come up to me and help me, and let us attack Gibeon, for it has made peace with Joshua and with the sons of Israel. So the five kings of the Amorites, the king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Jarmuth, the king of Lachish, the king of Eglon, gathered together and went up, they with all their armies, and camped by Gideon and fought against it. Gibeon, excuse me. What do you think the Gibeonites are going to do? Well, you know exactly what they're going to do. They're going to call on Israel for help. They're going to run to Joshua. So verse 6, the men of Gibeon sent word to Joshua to the camp at Gilgal, saying, Do not abandon your servants. Come up to us quickly and save us and help us. For the kings of the Amorites that live in the hill country have assembled against us. Now, if you were not born into a Christian family and you did not come to Christ at an early age, then your experience was probably somewhat like the Gibeonites. The world was under the control of the dark prince, Satan. But there's an invasion taking place. The New Testament Joshua, Jesus, that's the word for Joshua in the Greek, Jesus burst upon to the scene and is defeating Satan and spoiling his kingdom. Jesus leads a nation of people known as the church. And the church is on the march against the world and its prince. The gates of hell will not prevail against the church. First Peter 2.9 But you are a chosen race if you belong to the Lord, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness and into His marvelous light. You may at one time have been a part of the world, just like those Gibeonites were a part of Canaan. They didn't know anything about Jehovah God. They were living sinful lives. They were in rebellion against God, but when they heard about all that God had done, they realized they, they couldn't stand up to a God that powerful. That powerful, that God was more powerful than all of the Canaanite gods. And they began to see that when they heard what was done down in Egypt, parting the Red Sea, all the plagues. And then they heard what was done at Jericho. And they heard what God did at Ai. So they began to see, hey, I'm in trouble here because they're invading the land and I'm on the opposing team. So what I better do is go over and make a covenant of peace with the Israelites just like we come to our Joshua and make a covenant of peace with him. There was an agreement between the Father and the Son 
and the Holy Spirit. And that agreement was that Jesus would come down here to earth, take on the body of a man, be born as a little boy, grow up in Nazareth, and then He would take our guilt and pay for it so that the Father could offer full and free forgiveness, just like Mark just said, so that it would be legal. The law would be satisfied and everything would be done properly and in an orderly manner. So for those who would acknowledge their rebellion and repent of their hostility, He offers them full and free forgiveness if they will submit to Him in saving faith. But when the news got out, if you came to Christ when you were older, you may have discovered that the relationship that you once had with the world had changed. And some of your old friends may have become new enemies. Because when we start doing the things that Christians do, that's very intimidating to the world. And the world looks at a guy who was a part of their system, and now he's reading the Bible, he's going to Bible studies, he's even going to prayer meeting, he's talking about Jesus, he's given up some of the worldly entertainment that would not be pleasing to the Lord, and the world says, this is not good, we don't like this because it puts us in a bad light. And so the world gathers its forces, and oftentimes they are against someone who has become a Christian. They don't want you to become a fanatic. Now, it's okay to be religious, because they are religious. The world is religious. But it's not the true religion. People in the body of Christ get very close, just like family. Because Christ said, They are family. And the world doesn't understand that. They want you to still be a part of what they're doing because then they feel better about that. Now, some people in the world might say, you've probably heard some people say, well, I'm I'm Christian, I'm Hindu, and I'm Muslim. All rolled up into one. No, I'm sorry, you worship the dark prince. You worship a false god, if that's what you think, because Christianity is very exclusive. Jesus is the way the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through Him. And of course, you can't mix it up with other systems of belief. The world doesn't like that. Suddenly, you find yourself under attack. The world can instantly start a carpet-bombing run of internet defamation. Do you know what that is? The world can attack you in a moment just right on the internet. Well, what do you do when that happens? Well, you can't get discouraged. You've got to call for Joshua. And Joshua is going to come with some help, with some resources, just like the Gibeonites. You know you don't have the strength to fight off this alliance of agitators and rabble-rousers, so you've got to have some help. So Joshua is there on the way. Never fear. So we come to the disarmament of the enemy, an involuntary disarmament. Joshua 10 and verses 7 through 9. So Joshua went up from Gilgal, he and all the men of war with him, and all the valiant warriors. And the Lord said to Joshua, Do not fear them, for I have given them into your hands. Not one of them shall stand before you. So Joshua came upon them suddenly by marching all night from Gilgal. The Israeli War College studies Joshua's tactics. And others have studied those tactics all through the century since then. 
In the 1860s, the war between the states was raging in America, and uh, Stonewall Jackson employed some of the clandestine tactics that Joshua had used, where he would march his men all night and then surprise the enemy the next morning. Notice in verses 6 and 7 and 9, if you're looking in your Bible there, that Israel is camping out again at Gilgal. You remember Gilgal was the site of the first military encampment in the Promised Land when they first crossed the Jordan River. And this was a place that Joshua returned to numerous times after victories and sometimes after defeat. And we asked the question, do you have a base of operations where you consistently meet with the Lord to get His instructions for the battle? It's not just a place, but I think you do need a place. It's an attitude. It's an attitude of heart that says, I've got to get with the Lord now. I need the resources for the battle today. I want to get His direction. I want to have His blessing on everything I'm doing this day. That's the secret of spiritual power in a Christian's life. Meeting with the Lord. Being empowered by His grace. Don't let anything get in the way of consistent daily meeting with the Lord. Now someone will say, well, you don't have to do that every day. Well, that's right. You don't have to do that every day. Do you eat every day? Most people do. And the reason they do is it works better that way. You get some nourishment for your body. And this is nourishment for your spirit. Meeting with the captain of the Lord's host so that you can be strengthened for the battle. Now, remember, uh, Gilgal, from what we said back in that chapter when they got there. Let me read to you from Alan Redpath. May I remind you of the great words of the New Testament, truth and salvation, which have their roots deeply embedded in Gilgal. Here they are. Refresh your memory. Gilgal was a place of remembrance where all of God's people symbolically together went down into death. You remember they went down into the Jordan River, just like we go down into baptism, symbolizing that we've died with Christ. Where all of God's people... Excuse me, it was a place of resurrection where together they came up with their leader into life. It was a place of renunciation where they cast off the carnal existence in the wilderness. It was a place of restoration where they came again into fellowship with the Lord. It was a place of realization where they began to taste of the strong food of the land. It was a place of revelation where they met their captain with a drawn sword. The Christian life has its roots firmly embedded in Calvary the place where we died with Jesus and rose with Him, where we have deliberately renounced carnality and have entered into a living fellowship with our Lord, where we have begun to take the strong food of His Word and to realize every moment of our lives that the captain of the Lord's host is with us. Joshua 10, the battle commences now. And the Lord confounded them before Israel, that's the enemy, And he slew them with a great slaughter at Gibeon. And he pursued them by the way of the ascent of Beth Horon and struck them down as far as Azekah and Makeda. And it came about as they fled before Israel while they were at the descent of Beth Horon that the Lord threw large stones from heaven on them as far as Azekah. And they died. And there were more who died from the hailstones than those whom the sons of Israel killed with the sword. There are a number of references in Scripture to God's using hail. If you wanted to destroy the countryside, 
this would be an effective means of demolition. God asked Job a question one time. This is way back at the time of the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Have you entered the storehouses of the snow? Or have you seen the storehouses of hail, which I have reserved for the time of distress, for the day of war and battle? You don't want to be at war against God. He has weapons both physical and spiritual. Ezekiel speaks of God's use of hail in judgment. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, I will make a stormy wind break out in my wrath, and there shall be a deluge of rain in my anger and great hailstones in wrath to make a full end. That may be the Lord calling. <clears throat> I know one thing. The Lord made a full end to the Egyptian agricultural and livestock industry in the seventh plague. And you can see an artist's rendition of Moses there uh, calling in the hail as God had directed him. And after that hailstorm, there was not much left out in the field in Egypt. You can read about that back in Exodus. Psalm 18, 12 and 13. Out of the brightness before Him, hailstones and coals of fire broke through His clouds. The Lord also thundered in the heavens, and the Most High uttered His voice, hailstones and coals of fire. And then, according to Scripture, there is great hail coming in the final day of judgment. Revelation 11:17 we might not read all of this but we give thanks O Lord God almighty who art and wast because thou hast taken thy great power and hast begun to reign and the nations didn't like that they are at war against God and then skipping down to verse 19 the temple of God which is in heaven was opened and the ark of his covenant appeared in his temple and there were flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder and an earthquake and a great hailstorm. Now, softball-sized hail, about four and a half inches, travels at a velocity of about 120 miles an hour. That's 15 miles per hour faster than the fastest fastball any professional baseball player can throw. And you can imagine being hit by one of those balls coming at you. That's the reason they wear those helmets. So if you were hit by hail the size of a cannonball, I'm guessing it would be about like being hit by a cannonball. I don't know exactly what size God was using, but hail of that size is on record in Vivian, South Dakota, falling out of the sky on July 23, 2010. One stone weighed in at an ounce short of two pounds and a diameter of eight inches and a circumference of eight, 18 and a half inches about the size of a soccer ball. Uh, the rancher said the stone was somewhat larger, but it had melted a little by the time he uh, was able to measure it. There are a number of instances of people being killed by hailstones. And imagine uh, what that would be like if uh, God used really great big hailstones. Uh, you know, it's Sodom and Gomorrah. God doesn't fool around when He gets ready for a judgment. And so uh, there's an artist's depiction of God throwing down uh, great stones from the sky. Not all hailstones are round. Uh, some of them are in uh, different forms. That would be pretty rough to have a hailstone that size falling on you and your camel. So uh, God knows how to win the victory when it's time for that. But there's a requirement for the victory. A requirement. 
The day was not done yet because some of the enemy combatants were escaping. So why didn't God just send a guided hailstone on the mouth, uh, the, the head of each of the enemies, and just knock them all out? You remember he did that when he had a Syrian archer one time shoot an arrow at random toward the Israeli army, and it hit Ahab right in the joint of the armor, and he died that day. So God's into guided missiles. He can do that sort of thing. So why wouldn't he do, have done that for Israel? He says he fought for Israel. Well, the reason is this. When we become Christians, we purpose that we're going to engage, according to Scripture, in the spiritual warfare. We have spiritual armor in Ephesians 6, and we put on our armor, and we're going to be Christian soldiers who are in the battle. We're not just sitting on the sideline watching the fireworks while God does all the work. He has designed for us to be in the battle. And sometimes it looks like we may be casualties in the battle. But the outcome of the battle is determined. And if I get killed in the battle, I go to heaven to be with the Lord. Not, not a bad deal at all. But God wants us to be in the fight. You know, when you're in the fight, you learn a lot of things, don't you? Some of you guys have played in athletics. When you're sitting over on the sideline watching the guys on the field, you don't learn nearly as much as when you get out on the field yourself. And so God wants us to be in the action here. We are a part of the fight. Joshua could see what was happening, the enemy getting away, and so he paused for prayer. And it was an audacious prayer. Have you ever prayed a prayer like this? I doubt it. Prayer is the requirement for victory. We're in the battle. We want to win the battle. We want to complete the battle. And it may take a lifetime to do that, but prayer is going to be the requirement for victory. Joshua 10, verse 12. Then Joshua spoke to the Lord in the day when the Lord delivered up the Amorites before the sons of Israel. And he said in the sight of Israel, O sun, stand still at Gibeon. O moon, in the valley of Ajalon. So the sun stood still, and the moon stopped, until the nation avenged themselves of their enemies. Is it not written in the book of Jasher? And the sun stopped in the middle of the sky, and did not hasten to go down for about a whole day. And there was no day like that before it or after it, when the Lord listened to the voice of a man, for the Lord fought for Israel. Whoa, what's going on here? It's the longest day. The Lord is fighting for His people, and He still does. Now, we're not the nation. So we're not fighting against other nations now. We're the church. And we're international. We're local. We're non-political. You can have a church in China. You can have a church in Korea. The church is everywhere. So we don't want to be thinking about this kind of battle. We're in the spiritual battle. Now, before anyone says that the Israelites were cosmologically ignorant, we need to recognize that we speak the same way every day, don't we? We say the sun rose at 7 a.m. this morning. Well, not this morning, but on a usual day. Well, the sun didn't do anything. The sun stayed right where it is because we're in a heliocentric universe. And so the sun is there. It doesn't rise. It doesn't set. But we speak of it rising and setting. That's just the way we talk. But wait a minute now. If the sun stops, 
in the middle of the sky for about a day, doesn't that mean that the earth has to stop rotating and everything falls off? What are we going to say about that? What about the laws of nature? Frank Barker, in his study on Joshua, quotes from a book entitled Undeceptions by C.S. Lewis. It's a conversation that C.S. Lewis is having with a guy who is skeptical about miracles. And this is pretty good. Uh, The person says, But modern science has shown that there's no such thing as miracles. Really, said I, which of the sciences? C.S. Lewis speaking. Well, I can't give you chapter and verse from memory. But don't you see, said I, that science could never show anything of that sort. Why on earth not? Because science studies nature. And the question is whether anything besides nature exists. Anything outside nature. How could you find that out by simply studying nature? And C.S. Lewis goes on. Of course we can find that out as we study nature because everything in nature is designed. You're designed. Anywhere you have design, you have to have a designer. Whatever did the designing designed you and you're a person. An it can't make a you. Think about that. But don't we find out that nature must work in an absolutely fixed way? I mean, the laws of nature tell us not merely how things do happen, but how they must happen. No power could alter them. How do you mean, said I? Look here, said he. Could this something outside that you talk about make two and two equal five? Well, no, said I. All right, said he. Well, I think the laws of nature are really like two and two making four. The idea of their being altered is a as absurd as the idea of altering the laws of arithmetic. Half a moment, said I. Suppose you put sixpence into a drawer today and sixpence into the same drawer tomorrow. Do the laws of arithmetic make it certain that you'll find a shilling's worth there the day after? Of course, said he, provided no one's been tampering with your drawer. Ah, but that's the whole point, said I. The laws of arithmetic can tell you what you'll find with absolute certainty, provided there's been no interference. If a thief has been in the drawer, of course, you'll get a different result. But the thief will not have broken the laws of arithmetic, only the laws of England. Now, aren't the laws of nature much in the same boat? Don't they tell you what will happen, provided there's no outside interference? Well, that is uh, exactly right. I think that's a good explanation. We don't live in a closed universe. We live in an open universe because it's open to the influence of God. And God can do whatever He wants to do. And how He does it, I don't know. He interfered that day, but He didn't tell us exactly how He did it. We do know that at the northwest tip of Norway, the sun never sets from approximately April the 19th until August the 23rd. And even so, God can bend the rays of the sun through refraction or scattering of the light. He does that every day. With light, it could be, it's not how it is, but it's how you see it. Maybe He caused them to see the light of the sun. I don't know what He did. It says that the sun stopped. You see a ripe tomato as red but your dog sees it as a grayish green. If you don't believe that, just ask him. (laughs) So so we we see things uh, differently. 
And sometimes we see the refraction of light very differently than what it really is. I don't know how God did it, but I think God did it. And some people say, wait a minute, that's just poetry that was in the book of Jasher that we don't have. Well, there may have been some poetry in the book of Jasher written about that, but when God says He made the sun stand still, I believe He made it stand still. I'm guessing that Joshua and the gang were bone-tired after the longest day in history. What do you think they did when sundown finally arrived? Back to Gilgal. Then Joshua and all Israel with him returned to the camp at Gilgal. Back to their base of operation for some R&R. But their intentions were short-lived. The task was not yet completed. They received some reconnaissance intel that the five kings who had escaped were holed up in a cave. And now they've got to get back on their camels or whatever they were using and get back out there. It was told Joshua saying, The five kings have been found hidden in a cave at Maqueda. And Joshua said, Roll large stones against the mouth of the cave and assign men by it to guard them. But do not stay there yourselves. Pursue the enemy and attack them from the rear. And they did pursue in verses 20 and 21. And when they returned, Joshua brought out the five kings and put them to death. So we see in the, toward the end of the chapter, Thus Joshua struck all the land, the hill country, the Negev, that's the south country, and the lowland and the slopes and all their kings. He left no survivor, but he utterly destroyed all who breathed, just as the Lord, the God of Israel, had commanded. Now think for a moment. What was God's objective for the promised land? Well, where was God going with this whole thing? He was going to Bethlehem. He was going to Calvary. He was going to Pentecost. And He was going to the book of Acts where we're going to start in Jerusalem and go to Judea and Samaria and the uttermost parts of the earth. And nothing and no one is going to get in God's way. He is going to realize His objective. So the cup of iniquity of the population of Canaan is full. As Mark was saying in our Bible lesson, these were wicked people. And God says, your time has run out. Everybody has to be eliminated. There can be no kings lurking in the cave waiting to find some way of escape, rebuild their forces, and overcome God's people and thwart God's plan. It's not going to happen on Joshua's watch, and we can't let it happen on our watch. God uses means. Now, sometimes a person may have committed his or her life to Christ and be prepared to enjoy some victorious Christian living, but there's a king hiding back in the dark. And that king represents some sin that's still alive in your life. And the king has been temporarily shut up in the cave, but he's dangerous. He's still breathing because his master has only been studying one book since the beginning of time, and that's the book of the human heart. So this king knows a lot of tricks, and we can't leave that king in the cave. We've got to get him out. I'm talking about a sin that has to be brought out into the daylight, confessed, forsaken, judged, and condemned by you, because no one else may even know about it. Maybe it's pride that has to be crucified. Maybe it's ungodly burning desire like a fire 
deep within. Let's take a look at what it might be. Identify the kings in the cave. There's pride. Let me tell you what pride says. Pride says, you don't need to tell me what to do. I know what's best for me. And then pride said, I, I have a right to act like this because of the way I've been treated. If you were treated like this, you'd be acting the same way. That's pride. Lust, check out Samson. Romance will make you crazy. Now, romance is a good thing. But when it's Samson's kind of romance, it's just the desire, the strong desire, the pithymia that uh, lurks down inside the heart there. Hypocrisy, be you doers of the Word and not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. And greed, the Bible tells us, is idolatry. You start worshiping yourself and getting everything for yourself. But then here's number five. You want to guess? Oh, ungratefulness. Now wait a minute, that king doesn't appear to be as wicked a fellow as his four compatriots. Ungratefulness. But let me tell you, ungratefulness can create all kinds of problems for Christians. Because ungratefulness will make you discontent. And when you are discontent, you're going to have a bad perspective on most everything except that which brings you contentment. Have you ever heard anybody complaining about how they'd been mistreated? Well, Christ was mistreated. And Christ said, if they hated me, they're going to hate you. And anyone who comes to Christ, believes in Him, is going to find affliction and troubles and persecution if he's really living for Christ. But here's some good news. Guess what? It is a blessing. God intends it to be a blessing. The persecution is a blessing. Yes, God intends that to be a blessing. Because a blessing is anything that draws you closer to Christ. And if you're a true Christian and you're getting hammered by the world or whoever, you're going to be coming on back to Joshua asking for some help. Now let's uh, see what God says about that. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, not for the sake of pride, for the sake of righteousness. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when men cast insults at you and persecute you and say all kind of evil against you falsely for my sake, on account of me. Rejoice and be exceeding glad, for your reward in heaven is great. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. We don't normally think of persecution as a blessing. But see, God has a purpose in all things. And He wants to draw us into the fellowship of the suffering of Christ and get us close to Him. Now, archaeology informs us that in the rest of the chapter there, these conquest narratives, it'll say Joshua went to Libna and he did this and conquered and then the same thing in the next verse with a different city. And they are recorded in much the same way that Joshua records it here. So Joshua and his scribes were not some backwoods bumpkins. Uh, they could write and they must have been familiar with the ancient Near Eastern scribal style and practice. After Joshua dealt with the confederation that attacked Gibeon, then he began to expand the victory. And he went on. That's probably a little small for you to see there, but that's the outline of the southern campaign. 
as he uh, goes uh, straight on across. And you see Upper Beth Horon there where he begins to go down south. And then every one of those cities is what is mentioned in that chapter 10 in the last part of the chapter. And he goes to Maqueda, to Libna, to Lachish, to Gezer, to Eglon, to Hebron, and to Debir. And he wraps up the southern campaign with the beginning of the longest day there. So Joshua struck all the land, the hill country, the Negev, the lowland, the slopes, and all their kings. He left no survivor, but he utterly destroyed all who breathed, just as the Lord, the God of Israel, had commanded. Now why didn't God just convert the Canaanites like He did Rahab down in Jericho and like He did some of the Gibeonites? I don't know the answer to that question. Perhaps the same reason why He doesn't convert everyone today. But you know what that, how that should make us feel? That we ought to be very, very grateful that we have been called out of darkness and into the light if you are converted. So the end of the chapter there, Joshua captured all these kings and the lands, their lands, at one time because the Lord, the God of Israel, fought for Israel. So Joshua and all Israel with him returned to the camp at Gilgal. We keep returning to our base of operation, getting in touch with the Lord. So we begin right where we end right where we began, meeting with the Lord at Gilgal. Now the question is, have you entered into this covenant of peace with Christ to receive His forgiveness, to submit to His will and repentance and saving faith and to make an alliance with Him? He alone can come to your aid against this enemy consortium that is out there who seeks to attack you and your family. Let's pray. Lord, we thank You for the amazing detail of description that is in the Bible. Uh, We see how you fought for Israel and we know from the New Testament that you fight for us in the same way except that it's a spiritual war. And we pray, Lord, that we might have the strength and courage of Joshua, that we might look to you and that we might recognize that we are not powerful enough to stand against the enemy. Thank You for Your protection. Thank You for Your provision. And we pray that we might draw confidence and hope from these accounts of Your taking Your people into the land and establishing Your purposes there. Guide us now as we go. We pray in Christ's name and for His sake. Amen.